Hello, and welcome to part two of the first episode, Birth of an Idea. To hear what I will be discussing in this part, you can go to the end of part one, where I gave a brief overview. Now, let's begin. In September 1796, Napoleon, foreshadowing his coming victory over Austria, helped set up an essay-writing competition in his occupied territories, titled Which form of free government is most conductive to the happiness of Italy? The prize would be a gold medal worth 200 secchini, and the competition received 57 entries, suggesting many different forms of government, from a unitary state consisting only of the North to a confederation of all of Italy under papal leadership, or a continuation of the status quo all the way to complete annexation by France. Piedmontese Democrat Giovanni Ranza stated that Unity stood as much chance of success as for the search of perpetual motion or the philosopher's stone. However, the winner of this competition, Melchiore Giola, advocated for a unitary state system like that of France and argued that the principal factor behind the failure of Italy over the centuries to win freedom was not, as was often claimed, its climate, but its political fragmentation. With the introduction of liberty and equality, bonds of brotherly affection would be created, and there would be no longer Sicilians, Florentines and Turinese, but Italians and men. He went on to argue that The ease with which Italy can be invaded, the difficulty of bringing about general collaboration in her defence, the jealousy natural to all confederated republics, the slowness inherent in confederation, all are reasons why I dismiss the prospect of a federal system. A popular academic argument against Italian unity was that the larger the state, the greater the powers it must have, and therefore the greater the oppression it could instill. Giola responds to this. A hundred men do not subjugate 10,000 citizens, but 10,000 soldiers can make millions tremble. To this I reply that our historical records show that Italy has almost always been the patrimony of foreigners, who, under the pretext of protecting us, have consistently violated our rights. As Italy is accessible from almost all sides to foreign enemies, it is, therefore, 
best to provide her with the sort of government capable of opposing the maximum resistance to invasion. That government is beyond question a unitary republic. This essay competition was significant in many ways. Firstly, it assumed that a different form of governance was possible. Something that had hardly been considered by Italians, as the spirit of campanellismo, literally, pride in the church bell, a politicised form of parochialism, had been ingrained in the Italian psyche. Secondly, it opened the minds of many Italian intellectuals to the idea of an Italian state, how it might be organised and what it might look like. And thirdly, it is remarkable for the fact that Giola won whilst advocating for a unitary state. Napoleon did not set up this competition with the goal of establishing an Italian state, which he believed would be best for the people. Nor did he envisage that a unitary Italian state might exist. Instead, he wished to assess the different possible states he might create in Italy to best benefit him. He saw Italy as his power base from which to launch his political career. And the best way to launch his political career was to bring wealth as well as victory to France. Milan was saddled with an immediate indemnity of 20 million francs. Modena with one of 7.5 million, Parma with 2 million, and vast quantities of horse, mules, oxen and grain were also requisitioned. When armistice was signed with the Pope in June, he was ordered to pay 21 million lira in gold and silver ingots, coin and material. By the end of 1796, according to one estimate, nearly 58 million francs had been extracted from the Italian territories in money and valuables. The monetary extraction from Italy, although damaging to the Italian states and people, was a common and expected outcome of a new regime being installed. The Italian states obliged, and it met with very little protest. After all, although the Austrians were the vanquished, they were the conquered. These impositions of financial indemnities soon took a turn, however, when Napoleon began to cart off works of art, prints and literature back to France. In Milan, paintings were stripped from churches and monasteries, and 13 volumes of Leonardo manuscripts were removed from the Ambrosiana Library and only one was returned in 1816. Venice suffered especially harshly. In May 1797, French troops occupied the city, 
so bringing to an end of 1,000 years of Venetian independence. Hundreds of rare books, sculptures, manuscripts, prints and maps were also taken. The ultimate humiliation came on the 7th of December 1797 when the four bronze horses that had for 600 years graced the facade of San Marco and which more than anything symbolised Venice's former imperial greatness were taken down and sent off to adorn the Tuileries Palace and later the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. The great treasures of Italy were not stolen and sold to buy provisions for the army. They were stolen to embellish Paris and furnish the Louvre. When the Duke of Parma pleaded with Bonaparte to let him keep a painting by Correggio and even offered to pay him the value in cash, the general ignored him, insisting that it should adorn the French capital for ages and give birth to similar exertions of genius. Many of the works stolen were of great symbolic, cultural and religious importance to the local populations. And this was an intolerable humiliation to many Italians, one which many could not stand. An anti-revolutionary alliance was forged of crown, church and peasantry, fiercely hostile to the French, to the Patrioti and Jacobins. Popular hostility descended into violence in many places. In May 1796, some 5,000 peasants and artisans stormed into Pavia and forced the garrison to surrender. A month later in Lugo, news that the French had seized a silver reliquary of the patron saint of the town, Sant Ilaro, sparked off an orgy of rioting with the heads of murdered soldiers being paraded through the streets in triumph. In April 1797, French soldiers were butchered to cries of Viva San Marco! Viva San Marco! At Citta di Castello, in Umbria for instance, some 5,000 peasants besieged the town and massacred 300 of its largely French garrison. Count Vittorio Alfieri saw potential in this general hostility to the French as being a unifying force for Italians, as city divisions were being eroded, as no longer did the threat to each city-state's sovereignty, culture and norms lay in the neighbouring states, but instead the French occupation. Alfieri was a successful playwright and had been living in Paris at the beginning of the French Revolution. However, at the onset of the terror in 1792, he fled the French capital for Italy and Florence. 
Alfieri sought to teach Italians that they shared a common patria and that they should work together in loving and defending it. He believed that Italy would only become a nation capable of great achievements if its people came together and learnt to bury their differences, and there was no more effective and energising national glue than a shared enemy. Oh Italy, hatred of the French, under whatever ensign or mask they present themselves, must be the single, fundamental basis of your political existence. Then, before long, the time will return when the French no longer possessed such overwhelming resources and numbers and you will have shed the vileness of your customs, divisions, and opinions. Then you will be great in your own right, and from having hated and despised the French in fear, you will move majestically to hating and despising them in scorn. However, Few Italians found their outlet of anger and fear at French occupation to be with supporting the idea of an Italian nation. Instead, many Italians used religion and the church as a means of resistance. In the Romagna and the Marche provinces, priests led their congregations in public prayers calling for divine mercy against the sacrilegious beasts that had invaded the papal states. Mass pilgrimages were staged to the shrine of the Holy House at Loreto. At Ancona, the eyes of the Virgin Mary were seen flickering in a painting, and as word spread, crowds flocked to the church from all over the marsh and the miracle was repeated time and again in front of the ecstatic onlookers. At Monte Santo, the church bells were heard ringing in the middle of the night when the building was empty and a succession of remarkable cures were reported to be at the shrine. Napoleon did not try to portray himself as a conqueror, but as a liberator, as although much artwork, food and money were taken from the locals to pay and feed his army, Napoleon attempted to persuade Italians that this was an exchange. You are the first example in history of a people who became free without sacrifice, without revolution, without torment. We gave you liberty. Know how to conserve it. This liberty that France gave to Italy was indeed soon met with some support by many of the middle and upper classes, as it opened up new job opportunities and wealth creation. For example, 
The confiscation and later selling of church lands allowed many people, even if they only had a small amount of money, to become landowners for the first time. There were similarly many new job opportunities to work for the state bureaucracy and achieve promotions based on merit rather than heritage. Some of the key names of the Risorgimento, such as the Cavours, the Zelios and Balbos, profited greatly from this period. Napoleon also found much support from many intellectuals, Jacobins and Patrioti, though not all, but enough to fill the ranks of the newly instated state structures and later the Army of Italy. Furthermore, civic festivals were organised in Italy after 1796 in a bid to mobilise ordinary people and create enthusiasm for the new political order. Often the focus was of some famous local figure. Dante in Ravenna, Aristo in Ferrara, and some of the most elaborate festivals happened in Milan, where a large arena, begun in 1805, staged gymnastic games, horse and chariot races, and mock naval battles, with participants and spectators often decking themselves out in Roman costume for the occasion. Whilst vast tracts of open land near the Svorza castle was home to spectacular mise-en-scene. These festivals and shows were an important medium through which ideas and images of the Italian nation were generated, as ceremonies and symbols were becoming tools of a new civic religion of patriotism. They were instruments for engendering, channeling and focusing popular enthusiasm around the cult of the Italian nation. In short, Napoleon was effectively able to mobilise liberty and patriotism, in so doing gathering enough men for his primary objective of being able to field a larger army and to consolidate his rule in Italy. But a secondary outcome of this was that the idea of an independent Italian nation began to take seed much more widely than before. Many more people became familiar with the term Italy, leading to a rapid expansion in numbers of the so-called Patrioti. The removal of the many of the old states and the imposition of new borders and new leaders removed the sense of legitimacy that many of the old Italian states and monarchs had used to justify their rule. A legitimacy they would never be able to recover. But also, importantly, it helped to end many of the intercity rivalries and differences 
somewhat removing the centuries-old spirit of Campanellissimo. For the first time in centuries, Piedmontese, Tuscans, Milanese, Venetians, Romans, and soon Neapolitans were, although under different rulers, united as one, tied together with shared suffering and success as a sister region to France. I am just going to have a little break here to talk to you a little bit. I am very new to podcasting and so I'm still trying to work out what the best format for this podcast is. I think I will have one, maybe two little breaks per episode where I can answer any questions or just talk to you about something a little different. Today, I am just going to tell you about myself and my ideas for the podcast a little bit, so that hopefully you can get to know me a little bit better. I don't have any questions to answer this time, because I am recording all three parts of this first episode at very similar times, so if you have sent any questions in from part one um, at this moment in time as recording, I haven't received them yet. But I would just also like to say that I want to know about you and what has brought you to listen to this podcast. I would love for you to message in whether it be suggestions on how I can improve these episodes, your own knowledge about what I have been talking about, why you are listening to this podcast, you know, if you are studying for a project or are just interested, like me, in this part of Italian history, or any questions you may have about what I have been talking about. Literally anything. Tell me what your favourite pizza is or something. Pineapple or no pineapple. I would just enjoy learning about who is listening to the podcast. Anyway, I will tell you a bit about myself. As I think I mentioned at the end of part one, I am currently studying history and politics at university in the UK. I am just going into my second year and am working on this podcast in my own time, as Italian history is a topic that I am very passionate about since I began studying it during my A-levels as an EPQ. I think it is just such an incredible story, with so many amazing characters along the way, as you will hopefully see later on in the series. I am planning to do whole special episodes on Giuseppe Garibaldi, who is probably the most well-known protagonist of Italian unification, but also my personal favourites, Giuseppe Mazzini and Camillo Benso, Count of Cavour. For the rest of the episodes, I am planning to tell the story of Italian unification in chronological date order, from event to event, as it happened, without giving too much away of the future. However, I am sure you all may be able to guess how it ends. 
Because I am at university, however, I do not have too much time available to me most weeks to work on this podcast. Therefore, it may be that uploads are spaced quite far apart. However, I do promise that I will eventually upload as I really want to get this podcast to the end as I have already spent a lot of time working on it. But I also have really enjoyed the process. There have been times when it has been difficult and I'm sure there will be many more in the future. However, I will finish this. Anyway, let's get back to the story. I will now talk about the Kingdom of Naples, as it highlights the divisions present within the whole of Italy, except here it was more prominently conservative and supported by the British Admiral Nelson. Here power was wrestled over for eight years before it eventually came under a semi-stable French rule. On the 21st of November, the Neapolitan army, led by Austrian General Mack, who spoke no Italian, advanced against the French-controlled Roman Republic. Six months earlier, in May 1798, King Ferdinand IV of Naples had secretly signed an alliance with Austria and stepped up its preparations for war. Initially, the French were driven back and on the 29th of November, Ferdinand entered Rome proudly on horseback, took up residence in the Farinese palace and issued a proclamation inviting the Pope to return to the city. But his success was short-lived. Thanks largely to Mack's incompetence, the much smaller French forces under General Championnet were allowed to regroup and counterattack. Rome had to be abandoned, 10,000 prisoners were taken, and the remains of the Neapolitan army were soon fleeing in chaos. Championnet pushed south towards Capua, inducing panic in the Neapolitan court and on the night of the 21st of December, the King and Queen slipped secretly out of Naples with Nelson and sailed for the safety of Palermo. They left behind a city teetering on the edge of anarchy. In January, General Mack signed a treaty with France and agreed to hand over Naples and half of the kingdom to the French. What happened next in Naples perfectly exemplifies the divide Napoleonic rule in Italy had created. A divide which would exist in Italy for the next century. A divide between the conservatives, consisting of the highly religious peasantry and old nobility, against the reformers, consisting of the Jacobins, intellectuals, patrioti, and the emerging professional and middle classes. In Naples, the Lazzaroni, a tome given to the poor deriving from the saying, naked as Lazarus, 
were furious that their city was being handed to the godless French. When hearing the news, they took to the streets in fury, seized the city's fortresses, opened the prisons, and murdered anyone suspected of Jacobin sympathies. A group of patriots, in the meantime, announced the formation of a committee to help the advancing French. Among them was a high-minded journalist and poet, Eleonora Francesca Pimitel. With the city dissolving into anarchy, King Ferdinand's deputy in Naples, Prince Pignatelli, fled to Sicily and General Mack handed himself over to the French. A measure of calm was only restored when the elderly Cardinal Archbishop of Naples ordered the church bells to be rung and proceeded through the centre of the city, bearing the files containing the blood of San Gennaro. People fell to their knees in prayer. On the 21st of January, the French arrived to support the Patriots and Jacobins and took the St. Elmo Fortress and four cannon shots announced the formation of the Parthenopean Republic. The next day, the French and Neapolitan Republicans fought their way into the city and were met with furious popular resistance. And for two days, the Lazzaroni indulged in a spree of looting, burning and murdering. By the evening of the 23rd of January, General Championnet had secured control of most of the city and issued an edict guaranteeing impunity to all those who lay down their arms. In a further conciliatory gesture, he went the following day to the cathedral, where the archbishop ordered a tedium to be sung in thanksgiving. The seal was then set on the French victory by an unscheduled liquefaction of San Gennaro's blood. The new Parthenopean Republic was, with great difficulty, able to establish some control over its territory, with support from the French, and in some towns was met by enthusiasm. In Altamura, the population there had actually thrown out its Neapolitan rulers on its own revolution in anticipation of the French. And I will come back to this town in a little while. The new Republican state was extremely lenient to all those who resisted. However, this failed to win it the authority that it desired. A popular saying at the time among the Lazzaroni went, At the sound of the bell, long live the little men. At the sound of the violins, ever death to the Jacobins. 
Whilst the Republic was struggling to achieve its control, King Ferdinand and the British were scheming a way to retake the kingdom. A plan was devised. Cardinal Rufo, who had his power base in Calabria, the toe of the boot next to Sicily, would lead a small invasion force and cause a popular uprising, gathering men and would then march on Naples, retaking the city whilst being supported and supplied by the British fleet under Admiral Nelson. In February 1799, he landed and issued a proclamation to the brave and courageous Calabrians, urging them to unite under the standard of the Holy Cross and of our beloved Sovereign. As Rufo advanced north towards Naples, volunteers poured in, attracted by his promise that those who fought with him would be rewarded with the goods of patriots and the pillage of the towns and lands that openly resisted them. He was true to his word. At Cutrone, Despite offers from a small garrison of 32 French soldiers to surrender, an assault was ordered, and for two days, for the town was ransacked, and men and women, armed and unarmed, murdered. Rufo's forces swelled by bandit gangs and escaped prisoners, and protected from French attack by the British and Russian warships patrolling the west and east coast. Rufo's men finally reached Altamura, where the locals had erected defences and pulled together as much stocks as they could to defend with. On the 9th of May, the battle began, with the much outnumbered defenders mounting a successful and defiant defence, causing casualties of 1,400 men to Rufo's army. However, soon they began to run out of ammunition and had to resort to using coins as night fell. Rufo's men, realising this, planned to storm the town early in the morning. The defenders of the town, knowing that their defence was hopeless, snuck out under darkness, along with many other residents. When morning came, Rufo's army broke into the town and set about slaughtering anyone they could find in an orgy of destruction. At least 100 locals were killed and maimed in this action, a number which is likely to be far greater. Rufo stayed in the town for a further two weeks with those who returned being killed or imprisoned before beginning his march towards Naples again. 
This is a warning, as I will be describing the coming events, including deaths, in detail, which some listeners may find distressing. If you would wish to skip this bit, skip to the time 42 minutes and 20 seconds. However, it must be recognised that the French brought a clash of incompatible values, and this was not a tolerant age. Both sides fought for their beliefs. Cardinal Rufo reached the outskirts of Naples on the 13th of June. By now, they numbered some 40,000 men. At an open-air mass, Rufo placed them under the protection of Saint Anthony. San Gennaro had shown his unworthiness by liquefying for the French. And the following day, that assault on the city began. The Lazzaroni joined in, roaming the streets with the Calabrians to cries of long live the king, hacking down trees of liberty, ransacking and burning the houses of the rich, looting monasteries and churches, and murdering anyone who looked like a supporter of the Republic. Diarist Carlo Di Nicola watched the horror of severed heads and mutilated bodies with mounting nausea. A disgust that reached a peak on the 2nd of July, when the corpses of two Jacobins were burned and chunks of their flesh were sliced off by the angry mob, passed round even to children and consumed. Here we are, in the middle of a city of man-eating cannibals who eat their enemies. Dozens of patriots were tracked down and then hanged or decapitated. Among them was distinguished intellectual such as Domenico Cirillo, professor of botany at Naples University, a friend of Linnaeus, and a fellow of the Royal Society in London. Another was Eleonora Francesca Pimnitel. She went to the scaffold on the 20th of August, her brown skirt tucked modestly around her legs and uttering the words of Virgil, Forsan et Hayek Olim Memenesi, Juvabit. Perhaps one day, even these things will bring pleasure. Oblivious to such erudition, the crowd cheered loudly as she hanged. Rufo soon came to an agreement with the remaining Republicans holding out in the city's forts. They give up control of their positions and in return would be allowed safe passage back to France. This treaty also forbade any form of reprisals. However, this was a promise clearly unkept by the reinstated Kingdom of Naples. Two months earlier, a man named Speziale, a judge of the Neapolitan state, 
was sent expressly from Sicily and had opened a slaughterhouse, the human flesh, in Procida. One of his victims was a tailor who was sentenced to death for having sewn Republican clothes for the citizens. He is a schemer, said Speziale. It is right that he should die. Another of Speziale's victims was Pascale Battestessa, the Republican Commissar for the Cliento area, who fought valiantly against the anti-Republican insurgents. At the time of surrender, he was the commanding officer at the castle in the Baie area of Naples. Battistessa did not die on the gallows, having hung there for almost 24 hours. When they took him down to church to bury him, they noticed he still showed some weak signs of life. Speziale was asked what they should do with him. Slaughter him, came the reply. Admiral Nelson was the worst at sticking to this surrender treaty. He first openly rejected it and promptly proceeded to have a leading rebel, chief of the Parthenopian Navy, Francesco Caracciolo, hung from the yardarm of one of his ships and his body flung into the sea without a Christian burial as a sign no quarter should be shown to the enemy. This act constituted a war crime, of which he received criticism from Whig MP Charles James Fox in the House of Commons. Nelson soon took back his decision to officially reject the treaty, however it continued to be broken. King Ferdinand re-entered Naples on the 10th of July, around three weeks after the defeat of the Republicans. The French and Republican defeat in southern Italy coincided with Napoleon's time in Egypt and a massing of Austrian and Russian troops in northern Italy resulting in the French losing control of almost all the peninsula. Napoleonic order had failed to fully take shape in Italy, and peasants often grazed their sheep on newly enclosed land in direct defiance of the new laws. They continued in their millions to observe the old religious practices like pilgrimages and local saints days. In Milan, the crowds cheered as the Austrians marched back in. Thus, very little happened whilst Italy was under this brief period of Austrian occupation, as society had failed to have been fully shaped under Napoleon two years of occupation, and thus the Austrians had very little problem in shaping it back. Therefore, I will not focus too much on this time. Napoleon returned to Italy in June 1800, a year after they had been pushed out of much of Italy, 
and immediately won a decisive battle at Marengo, leading to a general French victory in northern Italy, culminating in early 1801 with a peace signed between France, Austria and Naples. France would again control all of northern and central Italy, except for Venetia, which France would gain later. Ferdinand in Naples was allowed to keep his kingdom and remained out of French control until 1806. I have only very briefly outlined this period of shifting military control, as Unlike earlier in the podcast with the French invasion and conquering of Italy, the Austrian control was only a very short change in military dynamics and had little to no effect on Italian society and the future Risorgimento. However, the effects of the re-entry of the French were important. Napoleon who had now made himself first consul in France, had almost unopposed power now in decision-making in Italy. This led to a fresh round of constitutional experiments, with borders once again being rubbed out and redrawn almost at will. Piedmont was annexed to France and was soon followed by Liguria, and the Cisalpine Republic was reconstituted in Lombardy and Emilia, with addition in 1801 of sections of the Veneto and later of Modena and the Romagna and the Marsh. However, during the ratification process of the new constitution for the Cisalpine Republic, a remarkable event took place. Napoleon invited a consultative assembly of 441 notables to Lyon at the end of 1801 to approve the text and secure his appointment as president. Surrounded by a glittering array of generals and ministers, he delivered a speech in Italian setting out his plans and justifying his acceptance of the presidency. Every time he uttered the word Cisalpine, however, there were cries from the delegates of Italian. And when he ordered a final version of the constitution to be read out, there was a chorus of Italian, 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 from all sides of the hall. Napoleon bowed to the delegate's wishes, and amid rapturous applause, the Cisalpine Republic became the Italian Republic. It would later, in 1805, be renamed the Kingdom of Italy. But for the first time ever, Italy existed in the form of a state. Far from the Italy that exists today, but bearing the same name, and a momentous day for many patrioti. It would later give Italy a sense of legitimacy 
when it was remade 60 years later and would again make more and more people aware of the existence of Italy, not only as a concept or an idea, but now as a physical state. Napoleon made himself president of the new Italian Republic and made his vice president the former principal lieutenant of the Cisalpine Republic, the widely respected moderate Count Francesco Malzi di Aril, who accepted the constraints imposed by Paris, but himself harboured patriotic ambitions. He hoped that for the Republic, if it was administered efficiently and produced a good army, become the natural colonel over the Italian nation, irradiating patriotic virtue and gradually drawing itself other territories of the peninsula. No, we are not yet a people and we must become one, and form ourselves into a nation, strong through unity, happy through wisdom, independent through true national sentiment. Over the next three years, he managed to carve out some autonomy for the Republic despite Napoleon insisting on almost daily reports, creating a relatively efficient conservative state committed to the maintenance of law and order. But on crucial matters, it was Napoleon who dictated terms. Thus, D'Aril's attempts to furnish the Republic with distinctly Italian penal and civil codes failed. In 1805, Napoleon decided to change the Republic of Italy to the Kingdom of Italy, removing his title of president and replacing it with king. He established five articles for the kingdom to be formed around. Article 1 Napoleon I will be Emperor of Italy. Article 2. The crown of Italy must be hereditary and confined to the people from the Kingdom of Italy or the French Empire. Article 3. Napoleon would hand over one of his sons to become king once the French armies had left Italian territories. Article 4. The Kingdom of Italy will never be united with France. Article 5. The Kingdom shall have a constitution based on the principles and laws of France. Napoleon was conscious of the power of spectacle to awe and impress, and he hankered after a grand coronation in Milan. 
he ordered the hapless Melxi de Iril to lead a deputation, offering him the crown of Italy. Melzi at first hesitated, then agreed, and then tried to soften this fresh blow to Italy's independence by seeking to have Lombardy made a separate monarchy, but no avail. Melzi di Aril was soon after replaced by Eugene de Buhanes as viceroy, and with him was lost any chance of Italian autonomy in decisions, as French rule led to the imposition of nearly identical administrative structures and constitutions. On the 9th of May, he entered Milan amid delirious scenes and for three weeks received a steady stream of admiring ministers, councillors, generals, judges, prelates, writers and scientists. And on the 23rd of May, in a dazzling ceremony in the cathedral, Napoleon was invested with the title King of Italy and placed the iron crown of Lombardy on his own head. Popular enthusiasm was said to be almost boundless. Not all in Italy were happy, however. In the small town of Crespino in 1805, not long after Napoleon's coronation, a protest against the high taxes descended into a political statement, as some 50 local workers sacked the town hall and destroyed registers. Support for the rebels arrived from nearby villages and the local militia was disarmed and the gates of the town thrown open to Austrian soldiers. When news of these events reached Napoleon, he was incensed and on the 11th of February, he signed a decree in the Tuileries Palace, declaring that the people of Crespino should be henceforth stripped of their citizen rights and be treated as a people without a fatherland. They were to pay double taxes and be punished by flogging rather than imprisonment. And over the entrance of the town hall, he ordered the following inscription to be set in marble. Napoleon I, Emperor of France and King of Italy, has decreed that the inhabitants of Crespino are no longer Italian citizens. The town was eventually pardoned at the price of one fishmonger being shot. There would later be many more such revolts in southern Italy after France would later take control of it in 1806. However, I shall discuss these later. The happiest place to live in Napoleonic Italy was Lucca. Elisa was governor there, 
Napoleon's least favourite sister. However, energetic and ambitious, she was so commanding a figure, she was nicknamed Les Semiramis de Lucas, after the legendary Queen of Assyria, who is supposed to have founded Babylon. In her principality, with a population of only 150,000, she behaved like an enlightened despot, encouraging industry, carrying out public works, and patronising the arts, including appointing Niccolo Paganini, the greatest violinist in Europe, as her director of music. Gratifyingly for her brother, she renovated the Carrara marble industry so that it was able to make 12,000 busts of their emperor. Art was not confined to Luca, however. Art in the form of ceremonies and symbols flourished and were tools of a new civic religion of patriotism. They were instruments for engendering, channeling, and focusing popular enthusiasm around the cult of the nation. When Vittorio Alfieri died on 8th of October 1803, his lover, Louise, Countess of Albany, was determined he should have a grand monument in the Church of Santa Croce in Florence. The choice of artist seemed obvious. Italy's greatest poet should be commemorated by Italy's greatest living sculptor, Antonio Canova. A large sarcophagus on a two-tiered epilitical base with lyres, masks, festoons, garlands and inscriptions and at the front, a majestic woman personifying Italy, next to the tomb of Niccolo Machiavelli. The monument was inaugurated in September 1810, and the general response was overwhelmingly enthusiastic. Canova had gone to considerable lengths to ensure the composition was grave and majestic, to correspond, he wrote, to the fairness of the pen of the supreme poet. In particular, it was the figure of Italy, the first ever depiction of the nation in a monument that attracted the greatest plaudits. When Ugo Foscolo paid a visit to his holy friends and masters in Santa Croce, in 1812, he came away ecstatic at Alfieri's memorial. Oh, how beautiful Italy is, beautiful. And yet, all that she stands over, a grave. It was during the Napoleonic period when there was a concern to make politics into a secular religion that the iconography of Italy began to flourish. Iconographic innovation came with a competition launched by the Cisalpine Republic in 1801. 
the winning entry by Giuseppe Bossi was especially striking. While other artists showed Italy passively restored to life and liberty by Napoleon, Bossi's canvas, suffused with neoclassical dignity and grandeur, depicted a strong, statuesque woman, dressed in green and white, with a red girdle, a crown of wolves and towers around her head, standing proudly before the seated Napoleon, one arm outstretched, received from him branches of olive and oak leaves, symbols of peace and constancy, the other clasping a copy of the Constitution of the Republic. All this was important in establishing an image of what it meant to be Italian, and what Italy could be. However, what proved to be the most powerful force in creating a shared identity was not found in literature, artworks, ceremonies, politics, festivals or societies but in the military. This is where I will now end part two of this special length episode one. In part three, the final part, I will be looking at the role the military played in fostering a sense of Italian identity as well as talking in detail about the Italian secret societies and the southern brigandage. I will then talk about how the Italian economy changed under Napoleon before finally beginning to wrap up the episode by discussing the fall of Napoleonic power in Italy and the power struggles that ensued as well as taking some time to reflect on the legacies that the Napoleonic era had on Italy, as we shall see in the rest of the series. But most importantly, I hope you have enjoyed this episode, one, part two. And if you would like to get in contact with me, please visit thestoryofhistory.com where you can ask me any questions, as well as accessing the script for this episode, where you will then be able to see the references that I have used and any suggested further reading for your study or entertainment. I would also love to know how you think I can make this podcast better, as I am very new to this and I would be keen to use any feedback you have to improve future episodes. Thank you so much for listening.